This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Chali Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver, we've been talking a lot about energy lately between the high price of natural gas and the push for electrification. But there's one energy source that often gets overlooked, nuclear power. Back in February, Republicans in the statehouse put forth a bill that would have reclassified nuclear as, quote, clean energy under state law. They've also called for the state to look into some of the more promising new nuclear technologies. But Democrats keep saying no. Which is interesting because it wasn't that long ago that nuclear fission provided power to Denver. Our producer Paul Caroli made a short audio documentary a few years ago about the people who powered Colorado's first and still only nuclear plant. It was called Fort St. Vrain outside of Platteville, and we're happy to bring you that story today. Today is Monday, March 6th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. St. Vrain earlier this summer began at the Visitor Center, which doubles as a museum dedicated to the history of the plant. Hello, hello. All right. Great. You walk in the front door, turn right past the bathrooms, and bam, you're in 1965. The Public Service Company of Colorado has just contracted a company called General Atomic to build Colorado's first nuclear power plant at the confluence of St. Vrain Creek and the South Platte River. They named the plant after an old fur trading fort in the area. Fort St. Vrain. Um, we're walking through the visitor center at St. Vrain. It is open by appointment all year round. My tour guide that day was Gary Witterspoon, one of the longest serving employees at Fort St. Vrain. He started there in 1984, and he's proud of the plant's old reactor. So this is a model of our reactor at HTGR, high temperature gas cooled reactor. Um, now you got to remember this was put together, designed roughly in the mid-60s. The faded plastic model standing before us looked older than I am. There were flecks of paint missing, and all the sharp edges were worn from years of curious school children and their prying fingers. It was truly a next-generation, even beyond next-generation kind of reactor design for its time. At the height of American enthusiasm for nuclear power in the 60s and 70s, almost every reactor was designed to be cooled with water. What made Fort St. Vrain's reactor special was that it was cooled with helium, which is a lot safer than water, and its graphite core. The sweet thing about the graphite core is that the hotter you make it, the stronger it is. 
Okay. So this idea of a meltdown or losing the core or melting the core, whatever was completely impossible in this design. And yet, despite that ultra safe design, the Fort St. Vrain Visitor Center and Museum does not just tell the story of a frontier pushing technological advance. Instead, it offers insights into the real question at the heart of Fort St. Vrain's high temperature gas cooled reactor. Oftentimes, the question gets asked, why didn't we continue to run? Why did it fail? Why did Fort St. Vrain fail? Looking back at documents from the 1960s, I saw a lot of hope and excitement about the future of the plant and of nuclear power. The whole enterprise was so promising, and this plant was so special and different. We're talking about 330 megawatts of carbon-free power, and it was supposed to be a model for other larger nuclear plants around the country. So what happened here? What happened when they started smashing atoms just north of Platteville? Um, yeah, at this point you're, you're completely tied to me as a visitor until I escort you offside, even today. Right, you got it. When Gary and I were done in the visitor center, he walked me through the old security checkpoint over to the plant itself. It doesn't look like the typical nuclear power plant. There's no cement dome. There are no cooling towers. It's more of a giant windowless beige building. And inside the front door, an endless maze of pipes, all different sizes, shapes, and colors. A power plant is kind of like the human body. It's made up of many systems, just like you have uh, a circulatory system and a nervous system and a pulmonary system. And all of those systems together combine to make the power plant work. Hundreds of contractors descended on Weld County to start building this behemoth in 1968. They got the reactor up and running for testing in 1972, and by 1976, the plant had generated its first watt of power for the grid. And that's when the hard work really started. Okay, my name's Stan Koleski, and I started in 1978 and worked till 2011 when I retired. Stan came to Fort St. Vrain after a tour of duty on a nuclear-powered submarine. So you had to know a lot of stuff on a submarine. Well, we got qualified, and that was all good. And then when you hit this power plant, it was just like... Complicated. Think about it from their perspective. They had regulators from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission breathing down their necks. They had anti-nuclear activists in the community watching their every move. They had higher-ups from the public service company pushing for speed and efficiency. They had public officials from other states looking at them and saying, hey, maybe we should build one of those high-temperature gas-cooled reactors. And those were just the external pressures. You know, a lot of guys have a desk work. If it's snowy, they don't need to go in. They don't have to re, re, um, relieve anybody. So yeah, if, if they think they could need to go into work, they'll try. They're still not going in wasn't an option for Stan on Christmas Eve, 1982. He could see a massive blizzard was rolling in, but his name was on the schedule. So Christmas 82 had my appendix out and I went up there after calling and they said, yeah, it's not too bad. So I went in and, and got caught up there with my stitches leaking. The storm was so bad that Stan had to stay at the plant for 30 hours, rotating shifts with the few other control room operators that were able to make it in. Uh, again, not, not 
no pat on the backs. It's something that was there. You just, you thought you had to get in and relieve your guy so he could go home. And it was just, you know, you didn't pound drums. It was just, it was just in your part of your logic. I got to get out there and, and that's my job. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade. Hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. A lot of the workers I've talked to say that the pressure bred a strong sense of professionalism and camaraderie. I get the sense that they all actually enjoyed working together. <laughs> well, in Platteville, there's a restaurant uh, called the Doubletree. Ted Borst started at Fort St. Vrain as a radiation protection manager in 1980. And when public service company built Fort St. Vrain, they added on a bar to that restaurant called the In-Between. And the rumor, again, the rumor is the only reason that that bar was put on there was because of Fort St. Vrain. And it was often pretty crowded with Fort St. Vrain folks. One regular at the Doubletree? Betty Inouye, nuclear documents clerk at Fort St. Vrain starting in 1981. We worked hard together. We partied hard together. Everybody socialized together. And uh, a lot of people got married out there. A lot of people got divorced out there. <laughs> at any given time, there were between 500 and 600 people working at the plant. And they worked hard. You work hard like that. And I think especially at, at that time, it was a probably a stress reliever. But... Every time we got the plant up to power and stuff, we'd have a party. And uh, the Doubletree restaurant right there in Platteville was our hangout. And we would all go hauling over there after work and everybody would be drinking like crazy and, and get done. And half everybody's probably half crocked. And we'd all go off to our little merry homes and go to Long Longmont or Greeley or Johnstown or Denver or whatever. And I'm sure there were many of us that probably shouldn't have been driving, but we did. <laughs> but, uh, the employees of Fort St. Vrain grew close over the years. So close that many of them still meet up every month at the visitor center to share a cup of coffee, some donuts, and swap stories about the good times. That's where I met Phil Barely and heard his famous watch story. There's one instance that happened to me that it just opened people's eyes when it, when it happened. The way Phil tells it, he was working away as a fuel handler when he got a call from the health physics department. So, Those are the people uh, that handled any radiation-related health issues. They, they, they call me and they says, you get up here right now. You get up here to radiochemistry now. And I went up there and Vern McGaffick, he says, here's a bottle, a bunch of bottles and stuff. He says, we need soil samples from your house. We need air, uh, water samples from your drinking water. We need everything. And I go, why? And he said, your tritium level, which is an isotope of hydrogen. He says, your tritium level in your body is higher than what's in the primary coolant in the reactor. Okay, so quick primer on radiation. Tritium emits radiation in the form of beta particles. These aren't the strongest form of ionizing radiation, but they aren't the weakest either. 
Basically, what you have to know now is that if they get inside the body, that's bad news. Well, anyway, he says, we got to find out where it's coming from. And I go, look at something first. And I took off my Timex watch that had a tritium dial on it. The tritium lighted up your numbers. And he took my watch, he put it inside a plastic bag, inside a plastic bag, inside a plastic bag, and sunk it for 24 hours in a jug of water. And then he counted it through their, the big instruments that they have. And I went the next day, and he says, you don't get your watch back. He says, your watch is leaching tritium through the back of the watch. The seal is broken, and it's going in through your skin, and it's in, in your body. Now, and Phil is okay. He told me he didn't suffer any serious health effects. The only real problem for him personally was that he was out of watch, which is kind of incredible, right? But it had to do with Timex, nothing to do with the nuclear plant you were... It had to do with our plant, but our plant detected it. Timex, as a result of that, no more tritium dials on watches. As a result of that incident? Part of that, yeah. I mean, that and other incidents. So I looked into this story about Timex and tritium, and I couldn't find any direct link between Phil's watch or any other specific incident and Timex's decision to take tritium out of their watches. It does seem to be the case that Timex replaced the tritium with safer glow-in-the-dark material around this time. So there might be something to it. But that's not really the point of this story, is it? And he was here several months ago at the other little thing, and the first thing when I walked up to him, I go, Hi, Vern. And he goes, Hey, Phil. He goes, The watch. He remembered it. You know, that was one of the instances where what they were doing was exactly what they were there to do. Despite the efforts of people like Phil and Stan and Betty and Ted, things at Fort St. Vrain were about to change. Let's go back to March 1979. There was this movie coming out called The China Syndrome. The China Syndrome. The harder they try, the more resistance they meet. They've got their own security man. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you want me to make it any clearer? The closer they get, no. the more threatening it becomes. No. It's got kind of an interesting premise, to me at least. Jack Lemmon, Michael Douglas, and Jane Fonda team up to investigate safety concerns at a nuclear power plant. They uncover a conspiracy that goes all the way to the top. And it all builds up to a really tense scene with Lemon in the control room frantically trying to shut down a reactor on the verge of a total meltdown. He's trying to operate it, and just for Hollywood, you have all these people knocking, trying to break in, knock on a door, electricians holding pieces of schematics saying, oh, well, we can, we, we can get it shut down, and, by, and t give me 20 minutes, we can get it shut down, as if Jack Lemon has total control in that power, in that control room. Well, that's a joke, because as I told you at the plant, any, any reactor operator worth his salt could shut that plant down 24 to, to 30 different ways outside the control room. Stan Koleski remembers seeing the China Syndrome in the theater with one of his colleagues. I'm, I was watching the crowd because this gentleman and I were getting pretty upset watching a movie, and they were just like, wow, rigid, you know, and getting ready to freak out. And anyway, we actually had a couple people that we heard them after the movie like, oh, is that, you know, they were traumatized. Not everybody, but there were people like really looking, and they took that to heart. And there, and then a couple, you know, and, and this gentleman, Mike and I were sitting there like, we were, we were, 
let's say, doing our own critique on it, like hopefully in decent language. And a couple of these people that were scared, you know, they go, well, do you know something about it? And we don't remember details, but either we heard them, they heard us. And and we just pulled them aside there in in the walkway. And we said, no, this is totally wrong. This this wouldn't happen. This is and and boy, it kind of reassured them. They felt a lot better, but they were spooked. Stan and Mike didn't know it yet, but all their efforts to calm people down were about to be completely reversed. And then some. For many years, there has been a vigorous debate in this country about the safety of the nation's 72 nuclear energy power plants. That debate is likely to be intensified because of what happened early this morning at a nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania. Twelve days after the China Syndrome premiered in theaters, one of the reactors at Three Mile Island partially melted down. A cooling pump broke down, and the plant did just what it was supposed to do, shut itself off. But not before some radioactivity had escaped. It was the worst accident in the history of American nuclear power, and it had an immediate effect on public opinion. All plans for new nuclear plants, including plants based on similar high-pressure helium-cooled designs, were scrapped. That meant that the special fuel that they used at Fort St. Vrain never dropped in price. And high fuel prices weren't the only issue. The unique design of Fort St. Vrain's helium-cooled reactor was proving to be more trouble than everyone expected. Maybe a drop of water got into the reactor and the whole thing needed to be shut down, or maybe there were new safety tests to run, or maybe some old parts were worn and they needed replacing. It was always something, and it was always expensive. So, in the mid-80s, there were several efforts by consumer groups to say, hey, Fort St. Rain isn't working. And why should the ratepayer pay for a power plant that's not working? And that's a hard one to argue with because... Ted says that these arguments led public utilities to take Fort St. Vrain out of the rate base. That meant that it would be treated like a private power plant rather than just another plant supplying power to the grid. The idea was we ought to be able to sink or swim on our own merits. And even though the mid to late 80s were some of Fort St. Vrain's most productive years, it wasn't enough. And so in, in late, the late 80s, the board of directors said, hey, we, we're not going to purchase more fuel for this plant because we're not operating well enough to justify that. So we're going to shut down. Something else that's happened in the last 30 years since the decommissioning is like a huge increase in awareness and worry about climate change and nuclear energy, you know, it's carbon free. So do you think that like back when the decision to decommission the plant was made, um, do you think if uh, the awareness of climate change was at the level it is now, that those decisions would have been different or if it would have impacted those decisions at all? No, I don't think it would have impacted those at all. Because again, it was strictly an economics issue. And I don't think public service company really wanted to operate that facility anymore. It was just a pain for everybody. Didn't work very well. There were members of the public that didn't like it, uh, members of the Public Utilities Commission that weren't strong supporters. And so it was just, it, it just had run its course.
The reactor powered down for the last time 30 years ago this month. Some of the spent fuel was shipped to the Idaho National Engineering Lab. The rest is still on site today in a Department of Energy facility built specifically for the purpose of protecting it. In a remarkable feat of engineering and ingenuity, the reactor itself was flooded and scuba divers swam inside with blowtorches to disassemble and remove it piece by piece. As for the workers themselves, many were redistributed to other plants and offices within the power company. Many more retired early or moved on to other jobs in other states. Some went on to work on the cleanup at Rocky Flats in the mid-90s. And a few, like Gary Witterspoon, stuck around to see their plant repurposed and repowered with natural gas. You're now entering the turbine building. This is uh, where the old steam turbine, our repowered steam turbine, is running. And you hear that vibration and noise, that's music to my ear as an old operator. The gas-powered Fort St. Vrain of today has the capacity to produce about three times as much power as the old nuclear reactor. But something is missing. We'll step over here, take a look into the reactor, or what was the reactor. By far the highlight of my tour of Fort St. Vrain was the old refueling floor. This is the cavernous room where Gary and his colleagues once used giant robotic arms to put fresh fuel into the reactor. All that machinery is gone now. All that's left is a massive reactor-sized hole plunging deep into the earth. Okay, from that corner you can probably see to the bottom. Oh my god. Holy cow. This is, I have to tell you, I didn't expect it to be this big. Um, it, it, it is. It's like 290 and a couple of feet to the bottom. Gary and I stood at the edge for a few minutes and gazed into the shadowy depths below. The natural gas-powered turbines were spinning on the far side of the plant, far off in the distance. And we shared a moment of relatively quiet contemplation. It's a moving sight. It's like regular language doesn't capture this. Do you ever think about poetry when it comes to this place? Ghosts. Ghosts of, of, of struggle. And in a way, it's good. Uh, it was very clean. We proved that the technology was incredibly clean. Uh, we proved that it would work, but incredibly sad at the same time because it feels like we failed to allow this, the whole world for that matter, to step forward into a next generation kind of nuclear power. There's a tunnel in the mountainside with dynamite, they blew it wide to mine out the uranium that they used to build the bomb. And if you're hungry, you can step inside and hope to find that golden light and hope to learn the endless joy of the power to and here's what else Denverites are talking about. Youth gun violence. East High School student Luis Garcia died Wednesday after he was fatally shot near the school on February 13th. 
That prompted more than a thousand East High School students, led by a group called Denver East Students Demand Action, to walk out of their classes in protest last Friday. According to Nine News, the group was calling for new laws to protect youth from gun violence, including the bill currently in front of state lawmakers that would raise the legal age to buy a firearm from 18 to 21. Garcia wore number 11 for the East High Angels soccer team. And if you're interested in supporting his family, I'm going to drop a link to the GoFundMe his teammates started in our show notes. And finally, a moment of joy. This moment of Denver joy comes to us from a listener. Hi, Bree and CityCast. My name's Allison Tordick. I live in City Park West. And my moment of joy in Denver and when I felt most connected to Denver was this morning. I'm a crossing guard at downtown Denver Expeditionary School at 19th and Lincoln. And it was just, you know, one of those slow days where everything's going a little slowly and a little grumpily. But then, you know, I rode, rode my bike down about a mile, got my big sign, stop sign, and sat on the corner and watched kids skip and run into school and say, hi, Allison, hi, Allison, and look what I have, and skip, 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 and it's just, Denver is full of joy. And if you're looking for that sort of joy, I would recommend calling Denver Public uh, Schools and see if you can be a crossing guard. It's really easy and really, really fulfilling. Thanks. I'm always on the hunt for more Denver joy to share. And I want to hear from you. When's the last time you felt love for Denver? Or when's the last time you really felt a part of this city? Leave us a voicemail with your name and neighborhood, and you might hear it on the show. Our Moment of Joy hotline is 720-500-5418. Again, our number is 720-500-5418. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. The song playing right now is an original and very explicit composition by Jesse Wooten of the local band Creekbed, which you'll find a link to in our show notes. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell your favorite local crossing guard about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. This tunnel in the mountainside with dynamite they blew it away to carry red the uranium that they used to build the bomb. And if you're hungry, you can step inside and hope to find that golden light and hope to learn the endless joy of the power to destroy. Um, oh no, that's radium. I was like, Marie Curie? <laughs> Glowing ghost of Marie Curie about us. <laughs>